Today's scripture reading is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. Abram's wife Sarai had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, Since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan ten years. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. When she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Abram replied to Sarai, Here, your slave is in your power. Do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you been, come from and where are you going? She replied, I'm running away from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring, and they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, You have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all his relatives. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, You are El Roy. For she said, In this place have I actually seen the one who sees me? This is why the well is called Bir Lahai Roy. It is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. The word of the Lord. Thanks for reading that, John. Good morning. My name is Darian. I uh, teach at a local university, but it's my privilege from time to time to get to preach here at Trinity. I've been a part of the community, uh, well, for a while. <laughs> uh, Genesis 16. Here this morning, we uh, continue a series that we've been thinking about called Living by Faith. Here we've been looking at the life of Abraham, thinking about how he is an example of, of faith. And so to make things easy for me this morning, I'm just going to call them Abraham and Sarah instead of uh, back and forth between their name change. That comes in chapter 17 next week. We'll hear about that story. Uh, but Abraham is an example of faith. And to this point in our series, uh, whether traveling to Egypt with Sarah because there is famine in the land or navigating conflict with his nephew Lot, or rescuing Lot um, from some rogue kings, these chapters in our sermon series so far has focused on Abraham's success. The Lord called Abraham from his land and his relatives to go to a land that God would show him. 
Abraham obeyed. The Lord gives Abraham promises of new land and vast descendants. And last week, when we thought about Genesis 15, Eric preached about how Abraham received assurances from the Lord that these promises of land and descendants would be given. And especially there in chapter 15, Abraham believed God and he was considered righteous for it. So Abraham is the perfect example of faith, one who trusts in God's promises and obeys his commands. But today, we encounter a part of Abraham's story where his faith falters. Today, we consider a story about how Abraham struggles to believe. To start with, and this might be the most important thing I say, it's really important to remember and understand from the story so far about Abraham is that he does believe. Abraham has accepted what the Lord has said to him. He has received the promise of the Lord with faith, but Abraham has struggled with resting in God's means and God's timing to fulfill the promise. Though Abraham's faith faltered, he is still a believer. Uh, Perhaps this makes Abraham a little bit more of a relatable figure to us. Uh, Perhaps maybe another example of a believer who struggled with faltering faith uh, would be helpful to think about at the very beginning as well. I'm thinking about Peter in the New Testament. You remember the disciples were crossing the Sea of Galilee in a small boat, and, and Jesus appeared to them, and he was walking on the water. At this point, uh, Peter asked Jesus, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Right? Peter demonstrates faith out of proportion to his maturity at this point, if you know anything about Peter's life. <laughs> uh, and, and when Peter asked this, the Lord said, come. Uh, the Lord said, uh, come, come and join me. And Peter did this. Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water, uh, showing his faith. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And this is what Matthew tells us. Um, uh, Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, came toward Jesus. Uh, But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. Now, Now, Peter's faith was good to this point. Uh, But it cracked under the strain, as anyone's might have in this circumstance. I mean, who of us have walked on water? Who of us faced down some waves? Uh, Even though Jesus then subtly or gently rebukes him, Jesus says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? But realize that this was not the end of Peter's discipleship. We know that Peter's faith... Um, wavered and cracked again when he betrayed Jesus. We read about that in John 18. But we know that eventually uh, that Jesus continued to work with him. And we see, uh, especially if we read the book of Acts, that at the end of Peter's life, he went on to great faith, great acts of faith. So perhaps we can relate to Abraham and to Peter in their moment when their faith falters. No matter how bad it gets, God is not done working. God sees and hears us in our moments of our greatest weakness, in moments when our faith falters. When we sink beneath the waves, we find that it is the grace of God in Christ that saves us. So, 
There are three things I want to think about here in Genesis 16. First, I want to make the point that I've already suggested here. Genuine faith, it is, it is genuine faith, genuine faith that falters. Second, the special way or the particular way that we see faith faltering in this story is the perspective that says, I'm going to do it my way. None of us know what that's like, I'm sure, but that's the second point. The specific way faith falters is that I want to do it my way. Third, it is Christ alone, the one who sees and hears. He is the one who rescues faltering faith. So, number one, it is genuine faith that falters, genuine faith that falters. The first thing I want to look at is a definition of faith um, in the... Um, uh, in the Westminster Confession. Eric, how do you read this every Sunday? That is so small. Maybe I'm older than you. I'm going to stand up here, okay? Uh, the Westminster, I've tried not to make you uncomfortable. Uh, the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith says, the grace of faith, notice faith is a grace. It is something given, whereby the elect are enabled to believe in the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. And is ordinarily wrought, that's just an old word that means made or accomplished, by the ministry of the word. So preaching the word, hearing the word, reading the word, this is where faith comes from. But look at the next bit. Uh, this is really important for us this morning. But the principal acts of saving faith, that is, the part of faith that we uh, act out, the part of faith that we are responsible for, we live into. The principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for salvation. Accepting, receiving, and resting. I'm, you're going to hear those three words all through the sermon. You've already heard them, actually. Uh, here, Abraham and Sarah, they accept and they receive, but they're having a hard time resting. It's clear that Abraham and Sarah believed God's promise that they, uh, were, uh, they had faith. In fact, look at Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us very clearly that it was by faith Abraham obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. By faith, he, Abraham, stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise. And also, by faith, even Sarah herself received power to conceive offspring when she was past the age. So clearly, Abraham and Sarah, they believe. They have faith. Abraham and Sarah have reoriented their lives in response to God's gracious work. They have moved to the promised land, Canaan, and expected children. So they've accepted what the Lord has said. They have received his promise in faith. But this story is about their struggle to rest in the Lord's way of accomplishing his promise. His way and his timing. Look at the story, how it begins. Look at the setting, chapter uh, 16, verses 1 through 3. If you have your Bible, this is a good time to turn there. Or the bulletin also is something you can see the text in as well. Verses 1 through 3, Abraham's wife Sarai had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian. Notice, and I don't have time to unpack this all, but notice she's Egyptian. There is this play between the promised land and Egypt all the way through these chapters, and it's not insignificant that Hagar is an Egyptian. And an Egyptian slave named Hagar, Sarai, said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. 
Abram agreed to what Sarai, Sarai said. So Abram's wife took Sarai, uh, sorry, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan for 10 years. A couple of things to notice at the outset and the setting of the story. Number one, did you hear that last phrase? Again, not a throwaway line. They had been there 10 years. Abraham and Sarah had been in the land of promise, waiting for God's promise of a child for over 10 years. We can sympathize with them that it's taking some time. The other aspect highlighted in the opening is the problem God's promises aren't coming to pass as Sarah had expected. Sarah said, I had not born any children for him. Abraham and Sarah expected God's promise of children, uh, but when that promise didn't materialize, they took things into their own hands. Now, before we talk about how they did it their way, that's the second point, how they take things in their own hands, hopefully we can, uh, I don't know, sympathize a little bit with Sarah especially, realize that for Sarah, her assigned role in society was to build a family. Verse 2, her status was determined by her children. And in that time, children were a woman's capital. There was a strong cultural pressure to have children, especially sons. Sons guaranteed that your family name would be carried on. Sons showed that you were prosperous and blessed. To be childless was a mark of reproach. Thus, to be barren would lead to pain and distress for Sarah. But even more... The story of Abraham helps us see that there is a kind of theological pressure that Sarah feels as well. Sarah heard Abraham tell her that God had promised him descendants. God had promised through you all the nations will be blessed. In fact, as we've already learned, uh, the Abraham means exalted father. Can you imagine Sarah's shame when people asked her husband, exalted father, how many children do you have? None. Sarah accepted and received the promise. She had faith. But when she remained barren, there was no resting in God for, for her. No resting in God's plan, at least. There's no peace. There's no shalom. Sarah felt the weight of emotional pressure. She wanted children herself. She felt the weight of social pressure. Uh, it was expected of her to have children in that moment. And she felt this theological pressure. It's God's will for her to have a child. In the midst of this situation, Sarah is in despair and in pain. And she blames God for her barrenness. Even though that's the wrong move, I can sympathize with her concern. She says, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. The emotional, the, emotional, the social, and the theological pressure on Sarah was too much. She had to act. Uh, now, we're going to move to think about that action. But before we do, Abraham is standing in the background here as well. But it's interesting, the narrative, the story here, doesn't tell us much at all about Abraham. The details of his struggle are left out. I'll, I'll come back to this in just a minute. But all we do know about Abraham from the passage we just read, verse 2, Abraham agreed with Sarah. He's passive here. He's agreed with Sarah. This is a low point for both of them. 
As the story moves forward, unfortunately, uh, it, get, it gets worse. But let me stop here for a moment of application on this first point. Again, it is genuine faith. It's genuine faith that falters. For my Christian friends who are here today, those of you who are following Jesus, you're, you're uh, hearing and responding to his call in your life, I hope that we can see ourselves in Sarah and Abraham, and, and Peter for that matter, even when we accept the truth of the gospel and receive God's grace in Jesus Christ, we still struggle with resting on Christ alone. How do you rest? How do you try hard at resting? I've thought about myself thinking, you know, mm, I'm going to try really hard to rest. Um, I'm going to work really, I'm going to have a plan, a Bible reading plan that helps me rest more. Uh, Anytime I think about trying hard to rest, it's only actions that come to mind. I don't have this completely figured out yet. A changed life is not automatic. We don't wake up one day and have it all figured out. As living sacrifices before God, we have a tendency to crawl off the altar and once again depend on ourselves. So maybe we can see ourselves in Abraham and Sarah. We have faith. We accept and receive, but how do we rest? If you're here today and you're still sorting out whether you believe or not, we're so glad you're here. This is a place for you. But notice that Christianity, notice that Christians are are not perfect people. Being a Christian isn't about exercising every doubt. In fact, a large part of the Christian life is encountering doubts. Struggling and learning to depend, learning to rest. Now, God knows that Sarah and Abraham will struggle to rest in his promise. And as we read the story, we see how he provides. So that's a great image of genuine faith that actually falters and that struggles. And I hope we can see ourselves in the experience of Abraham and Sarah. So that leads us to our second point. The way faith falters, uh, this is not the only way for it to falter, but this is really common. The way, faith, way, the way faith falters is when we start saying, I'm going to do it my way. Um, I'm going to take into my own hands God's plans. Look at verses 3 through 6. We already read 3. So Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, the, her Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, uh, gave to her to her husband as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan for 10 years. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. Notice, notice uh, Hagar's response, this, because this verse 4 is talking about how Hagar responded. When she, Hagar, saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. This means that Hagar became proud. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. Uh, this is also not right. Uh, Sarah has said, God is responsible. He's not given me child. Now it's Abraham's fault. But this is just what happens to human beings when our plans aren't working out. We blame shift. We think someone else is at fault. You're responsible for my suffering, Sarah says. I put my slave in your arms And when she uh, saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Abram replied to Sarai, here your slave is in your hands. Do you hear that literary artistry here? Sarah put Hagar in Abraham's hands or embrace. Abraham is saying, she's in your embrace. (laughs) 
Poor Hagar is like a hot potato between the two of them. No, it's your problem. No, it's yours. They're both doing it. And then what happens at the very end here? Um, Abraham says to Sarai, here your slave is in your hand. Do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar so much that she ran away from her. Because Sarah feels this immense pressure because she's not resting in faith. She devises a plan to accomplish what God wants. That's good. But in her own way and in her own time. That, of course, is bad. Sarah offers her maidservant Hagar. We probably have to talk about that just a little bit because this is not a cultural practice that we experience. Um, this, is, this is something that would be typical in this time period in the ancient Near East when a household, uh, the wife of the household is not uh, fertile, she doesn't have a child. Uh, she could choose from among her slaves to give to her husband as kind of a second-tier wife because that means she doesn't have all the status that the actual wife would have. But if that slave had a child, that child would be the possession of the household. It would be the possession of the real life, as it were. So Sarah is not doing something immoral here. She's not doing something outside the confines of ancient culture. But what we do see is Sarah taking things into her own hands. She's trying to accomplish God's plan in her own way and in her own timing. I mentioned it already, but notice that all this time, Abraham has been completely silent. He's acting like the innocent bystander. Abraham just goes along with the plan. But his misguided compliance is cast in the same terms as Adam's disobedience in Genesis chapter 3. Both Adam and Abraham, quote, hearken to the voice of their wives. Genesis 3, Genesis 16. And moreover, both Eve and Sarah took and gave. Now, Sarah took and gave uh, the fruit of the tree, uh, but, but uh, Sarah took and gave Hagar. It's no coincidence. The author of Genesis is trying to say, Abraham is just as guilty as Sarah. He is complicit in the sin, just like Adam was complicit in the sin in the garden. They both are taking matters into their own hands. This is the temptation we face to get the promise, a good thing, on my own terms, a bad thing. If I have to get a child through divine intervention, then I will have to rely on God. I'll have to rely on grace. I will be out of control of my own destiny. But if I trust in my own ability to have a child, I can rely on myself. I can control my future. This is the choice of being dependent on God or on myself. Justification through grace or through the law. Looking to God for salvation or attempting to be my own savior. This is how Paul interprets this passage in the book of Galatians in chapter 4. The works of the flesh never justify. They always end in disaster. In fact, uh, look at this quote from uh, Rusty Reno. He's a commentator who's thinking about Genesis, and he's thinking about Genesis 16 through Paul's interpretation. He says this, the problem with works righteousness is not that it offends against divine pride, as if the Lord is a greedy sovereign who wishes to have everything under his control. In other words, 
Works righteousness is not, an, you know, it, it doesn't bother God. He's sovereign. Um, here's the problem. Instead, works righteousness is a spiritual disaster for us. When we try to devise our own ways forward into God's promise, we end up slaves to our self-wrought schemes. Just as the Israelites fell under the thrall of the goaded calf, of their own devising. Paradoxically, we become the servants of that which we create in order to satisfy our heart's desire. Ah, ouch. Um, We end up slaves of our own self-made schemes. We reap what we sow. This is exactly what happens to Abraham and Sarah. Notice that Sarah's scheme works perfectly. Her plan plays out just as she wanted. But it doesn't bring her fulfillment. In fact, notice the first thing it brings. It brings conflict between her and her slave. Because Hagar now looks at Sarah with contempt. There's all kinds of literary artistry with this word as well. The word contempt here in Genesis 16 echoes back to Genesis 12. Where it says... God saying to Abraham, I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. Sadly, the effect of this literary connection is to see Hagar as an enemy of God's people. Sarah's plan has made a new enemy. Not only has it made an enemy, though, it's, it, it, it's, it's a brought conflict between Sarah and Abraham, and it's not brought her any relief from the pressure she feels. So Abraham and Sarah uh, have, have, have sinned. Hagar also has sinned by placing her confidence in her own works, her ability to have a child when Sarah could not. So let's summarize this disastrous story so far. Hagar became pregnant and proud. Sarah felt despised, concocted a plan, but then regretted the success of her plan only to turn and make Hagar's wife, sorry, sorry Hagar's life, miserable. And then Abraham, well, what can we say about Abraham? He just quickly sought to wash his hands of the whole situation. Sarah and Abraham end up regretting their actions. But realize regret isn't repentance. They're feeling the effect of becoming slaves to their own self-made plan, and they regret it, but they have no way out of it. Repentance draws fault close by accepting responsibility and asking for forgiveness rather than regret, just trying to drive fault away. Sarah tries to drive her failure away by making Hagar's life miserable. But Sarah cannot put Hagar away. Sarah cannot cover her actions just as we cannot put away the consequences of our sin by driving them out of our memories into the wilderness of forgetfulness, regret accomplishes nothing. When we come together on Sunday morning and and we come to our moment of renewal, this isn't a moment of regret. This is a moment of repentance. Saying the truth about where we are, but finding love and forgiveness, grace, from the God who loves us in Christ. He releases us from this faulty faith. So there are no heroes in this story. What is to be done? Point number three. 
It is Christ alone, uh, the one who sees and hears. He is the one who rescues faltering faith. Look at, look at what happens here in verse 7. There's a shift in the story. And in verse 7, we hear this, the angel of the Lord. Uh, so I have to just confess something. Many of you know I'm a professor, and I am so tempted to to talk about the angel of the Lord for 40 minutes now because it is amazing. It is fun. It's all through the Old Testament and we see a glimpse of Jesus here. But I will try to restrain myself as much as possible because there are snacks after church. <laughs> the angel of the Lord found her. Oh, yeah, I, this is going to be hard for me not to just stop at every word. The angel of the Lord, he finds Hagar by a spring in the wilderness uh, named Shur. He said, Hagar, slave Sarai, I love this question. Where have you come from? Where are you going? Do you think God doesn't already know that? This question is purely for Hagar's benefit. Oh, this is what Jesus says to you. Where are you right now? Where have you come from? And where do you think you're going? This is a loving question for God to ask us because we need in our busy lives to slow down for just a minute and slow down enough so that we can feel. My wife and I, oh, this is dangerous. I shouldn't use an illustration like this, but uh, my wife and I sometimes have conflict because she knows exactly what she feels and thinks in the moment. Something happens, bang, she has an opinion. And for me, it takes me a couple of days. I need to be alone a little bit. I have a little journal that I write in because I'm not quite sure what I think or feel until I write it out. And that has been a conflict for us sometimes because I, I just, I don't know what to say to her. So this is a gracious question. Okay, I should keep reading. This is a gracious question that the angel of the Lord asks Hagar. Where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I am running away from my mistress Sarah. An honest answer. I'm in rebellion. I'm running away. I'm trying to fix my own problems. I'm in the wilderness. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, go back. What? what uh, why? Go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. And the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring, and they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael. Ishmael means the Lord hears. For the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. I'll stop there. Uh, there's a lot to talk about here. First, look, the phrase, the angel of the Lord found her. This gives us the impression that the Lord was seeking Hagar all along. He was pursuing her. We might think that we have come to church this morning and we have found God and we have sought him. Ah, but way before we knew we needed him, he has been seeking us. He came looking for us and found us like Hagar, not quite sure where we were in the wilderness. Hagar could flee from the presence of Sarah, but she couldn't flee from the presence of the Lord. All right, there's, there's a lot more to say, but I'm just going to hold myself to two things. First, again, notice where, notice where the angel of the Lord meets Hagar. By a spring on the way to Shur. 
Now, this might sound like just a random fact. Shur was the name of the desert area bordering Egypt in the northwest corner of the Sinai Peninsula. This is the border between Israel and Egypt. This means Hagar was running home. She was running back to Egypt. And this geographical note draws to our attention a continual undercurrent throughout the story of Abraham, the conflict between the attractions of Egypt and the barrenness of the promised land. This theme first appears in Genesis 12 when Genesis 12.10 says, now there was famine in the land, right? Barrenness of the promised land. And the solution was to go down to Egypt where there was plenty of food. The next chapter in Genesis, we see that Lot chose a well-watered land, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. And of course, Abraham got another portion of the land that was less prosperous. Now in this story, we see Hagar, the Egyptian, who is fruitful and becomes pregnant while Sarah remains barren. And when living in the promised land uh, with Abraham becomes intolerable, Hagar, of course, heads for Egypt. here's Here's the point to reflect on. Each of these instances, choosing the fertility of Egypt over faithfulness, staying in the promised land, leads to disastrous consequences. The Egyptian option, I hope we start talking like that in our church. Don't take the Egyptian option, guys. No, that, that's, uh, that might look good, it might look fertile, but it actually ends in disaster. Choose faithfulness instead of comfort or ease. Uh, so even that little geographic detail, the Lord rescues or finds Hagar on her way to making the Egyptian option. But let's just now focus on this last point here. Uh, Who is the angel of the Lord? This is the first time in the Bible that we find this phrase, angel of the Lord. Um, Notice in verse 10. If you look there in verse 10, the angel of the Lord says, uh, the angel of the Lord gives a promise to Hagar. I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. Does that sound familiar? Number one, that's the promise Abraham got. Here, Hagar is getting that promise. But who is the one who makes this kind of promise? Uh, That's usually something reserved for God. That's Yahweh. But here, it's the angel of the Lord making a promise like that. Okay, keep going. In verse 11, the angel of the Lord says, The Lord has heard your cry of affliction. Here, the angel speaks of the Lord, or Yahweh, as a separate person. So, angel of the Lord seems to be, at this moment, separate from God or Yahweh. It seems that the angel is speaking on behalf of Yahweh. But that is until the narrator tells us that it was Yahweh himself, it was the Lord himself, who spoke to Hagar. And Hagar calls this angel God. She also names the Lord who spoke to her. You are El Roy, the God who sees me. What is going on here? This is my temptation. I want to talk about the Trinity now. But at least let me say, here is the Old Testament giving us a little window into how the messenger of God speaks obediently the word of God, but is identified with God himself. This is, for early Christians... a a little window of reading the Old Testament and seeing that Jesus Christ is God himself. Jesus Christ um, 
shares the identity of God. And, and so it is not wrong to read this story and hear God pursuing Hagar in the wilderness and see a glimpse of Jesus. God himself comes near to Hagar. He has sought her in the wilderness and found her. He tells Hagar to name her son Ishmael. God hears. And then Hagar turn, it turns and gives God the name God sees me. This story is a story of how God himself comes near uh, to those who are lost and broken. And he sees them and he hears them. In his classic commentary, uh, a guy named John Gill Uh, he died a long time ago, says this, the Lord's eyes was upon Hagar wherever she was and saw all that she did. He saw her transgressions, her contempt for her mistress, her flight from Sarah. He saw her when she was at the spring and reproved and called her back and sent her to her mistress. He saw all the works of her heart, her repentance, her sorrow for her sins and looked and smiled upon her and gave her exceedingly great and precious promises. And the Lord also sees and hears you right now, today. You're not standing by a well at Shur. You're not in the wilderness. But he sees you. He has come near to you in Christ. Christ has become a man. He took on flesh. And like the angel of the Lord, Jesus meets us in our faltering faith. He sees and he hears So by way of conclusion, I want to remind you of Peter. Remember Peter's example of walking on the water only to sink when the wind and the waves came up? Peter, though terrified with the rest of the disciples in the midst of the storm, Peter heard the voice of Jesus say, Have courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Peter not only accepted and received Jesus' words, but he also rested. He trusted. And when Jesus commanded him to come onto the water, Peter obeyed. But even then, in the midst of his faith, in the midst of his trust in Jesus, Matthew records this, but when Peter saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid, and he began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Like Peter, Abraham is an excellent example of a genuine believer whose faith falters. Later in Peter's life, he writes the letter 1 Peter, and he reflects on God's faithfulness there in the midst of the wilderness, in the midst of the storm, and he finds the words of Psalm 35. There he finds language to describe how Christ had rescued him. Listen to this, Psalm 34. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry for help. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord sees, and he hears. He has heard the cry of your affliction. He knows what you're experiencing. He knows your pain. Do not take matters into your own hands, but accept and receive and especially rest on Christ alone for salvation. Whether it's for the first time in your life or the hundredth time in your life, I'll end with this. Let Peter's cry be yours. Lord, save me. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that um, we have this example of, of Abraham and Sarah. We have this example that 
genuine faith, faith that does trust, faith that does receive, falters at times and, and finds it difficult to trust and to rest. Lord, thank you that in, in these pages of Scripture, we, we see not perfect believers or perfect Christians, but we see uh, flawed um, and struggling followers that you have loved and drawn to yourself. Lord, with this story in mind and uh, this, this idea in mind, Lord, would you draw us to yourself now? We, we need your rescue. Like Hagar, we find ourselves at a place where we need you to ask us the question, where have you been? Where are you going? Lord, help us. Find us. And in finding us, help us to respond to a beautiful Jesus who rescues us, who, who sees us and hears us, in a world where we struggle being known and being seen, um, help us to find rest in knowing that the God who made us and the God who has saved us in Christ is also the God who finds us where we are now and hears us and sees us. Oh, Lord, draw us to yourself and help us to have faith, faith that you give us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.